Bibles now, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 5, fifth chapter of Ephesians. And tonight we're in the second part of a two-part message that will finish us out for the fifth chapter. And we've been discussing the filling of the Spirit, and this subject really doesn't end here with chapter number 5. Uh, really, it's going to, we'll be concerned with the same subject for about four more weeks as we get into chapter 6 as well, before Paul changes and goes on to another, another type of, uh, of teaching. But we've been talking about submission and how that spirit-filled Christians are to be submissive in God-ordained institutions, uh, God-ordained relationships. God has delegated an authority in the home, and a spirit-filled home is one in which the wife is in submission to her husband, and also one where the husband is in submission to Christ. When we talk about those things, usually we put more emphasis on the submissive wife than we do on the role of the husband. But really, the emphasis, I think, in the chapter is more on the husband and his submission and how he's to be the husband that he needs to be. And that's because God has granted authority to the husband, and part of his submission is to commit himself to Christ, to love his wife in the same way that Christ loved the church. And to do that puts a very heavy burden upon uh, on a husband because he needs to be diligent to find out what kind of love that Christ had if he's going to love like Christ's love. So men, when you enter into a marriage, uh, it, it won't be a piece of cake. There are heavy responsibilities that are placed upon you. And many times we find that when a marriage fails, it's not because of what the wife has done in her submission, but more likely it's because a husband has not patterned himself after Christ's love. Well, the teaching here in chapter 5 uh, gives us some information about right relationships in the home. But more, more importantly than that, it also teaches us about Christ's relationship to his church. And Paul uses the marriage institution as being emblematic of the church institution. God has divine two divine or ordered two divine institutions upon the earth. One is the home, the family, and the other is the church. And we're, we're to have the right relationship in our homes and pattern that after the way that Christ loved his church. Well, in this message, uh, we're discussing principles for devoted Christians... And we're talking about why a Christian should be a part of the church. If this is an institution that Christ loved and gave himself for, then Christians certainly ought to be a part of it because whatever interests Christ and whatever Christ loves, then his people ought to love as well. In our lesson last week, I, I emphasized that we do not believe in a universal invisible church whereby every person who gets saved automatically becomes a part of the church but rather we believe that the church is a local, visible institution. And the way that you come into the church is you're not added to it automatically when you're saved. But you have to, be, you have to join the church. You have to come through the ordinance of baptism. And that's the way you become a part of, uh, of the Lord's church. And when I speak of baptism, I'm sure that you don't misunderstand me here. I'm not talking about Holy Spirit baptism. We've been over that. We're talking about water baptism. That is the entrance into the Lord's church. So every Christian who wants to take the next step of obedience after they're saved, should be willing to submit themselves to the authority of the church in baptism, and thereby they're added to the Lord's church, become a part of it, and they're ready for fellowship with God's people. And this message is to help you to understand a little bit better why each person ought to take that step. 
Now, I'm talking mostly, I think, to church members tonight, uh, so we're just going to reinforce some things I hope that you already know. Then if you ever ask questions about this, if someone wants to know, why should I be a member of a church? Well, you'll be able to tell them about that. Uh, The message that I'm preaching tonight, I've taken from a pamphlet that I wrote a few years ago called Why I Need to Be a Member of the Church. It takes about 10 minutes to read that pamphlet, and it's taken me two sermons to explain what that pamphlet is about. So you can see I've greatly expanded upon it. So this evening we're going to take up part number two of this message. So if you'd stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 25. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives... Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Help us, Lord, to understand uh, these concepts that we're going to talk about tonight a little bit better. We just thank you so much for the blessed privilege that we have of being a part of your church. Thank you for those who've come out tonight and uh, for the love that they show for the Savior and their commitment to him. Just bless our church and be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to very quickly go over some information that we talked about in the last sermon. Uh, Point number one of the message was the priority of church membership. There are some things that you get in the church that you simply cannot get anywhere else. One of the things that God has designed the church for is the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. God has not entrusted his truth to any one individual. He's not given it to any organization except his own church. The, the, the foundation for truth is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's to uphold that truth, and we can't get that truth in any other place like we get it here. The church has also been committed with the authority to teach God's Word. We have the authority to, uh, to uh, uh, administer the ordinances of Christ. We, we baptize. We, we observe the Lord's Supper. We are a place that's responsible for evangelizing the world. And whenever you find that groups take over that authority from the church, you always find out that the truth suffers and also the church itself suffers and truth will be destroyed if it's not upheld in the proper place that God has uh, ordained for it to be. And that's his church. If you look over all of the man-made organizations that we have in the world and people that have set themselves up in order to be purveyors of truth, you'll always find this to be true, that over a length of time, uh, it it, it takes some time sometimes, but over a length of time, those people who try to take this authority do not remain true and consistent to the New Testament principles that are taught here in the Bible. The only one that has remained perfectly consistent all the way back to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ is the church. And that's because God made it an organization that would withstand the test of time. The scripture says, Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So if the church is a place for truth, it's a place for teaching, it's a place for the ordinances and a place for evangelism, then it ought to be very clear to us that Christians ought to join themselves to a true New Testament church. Well, there are many churches out there, so-called churches, or places that call themselves churches, and 
uh, you, you'll run across a, a lot of different folks that say that they're telling the truth and they claim to be New Testament churches. But the only way that you can judge a New Testament church is to put what they teach right up next to the Word of God and see if they adhere to those very principles. I've mentioned this a couple of times uh, before, but in speaking to uh, Hazel and Claude, you know, they were telling me about a place that they went that had church on the door. But when they got into this place that was called a church, they said, well, we don't use the Bible here, and we don't talk about God here. They don't mention that. They don't read any scripture. And so there are places out there that call themselves churches. They may have the name on the door, but they're not churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to go on here to the second part of the message tonight, and we're going to talk about the purpose of church membership. Now, all of the things that we've discussed so far, I think they would lend themselves to be called the purpose of the church. I mean, certainly uh, uh, in the church, uh, I come here for the purpose of receiving truth. I come here to be taught God's word. I come here to receive the ordinances. I come here to be a part of evangelism. Those are all purposes for the church. But I think we can expand upon the thought just a little bit more. And we can talk about some other things for why you need to be a member of the Lord's church. So what do you get from the Lord's church? I want to emphasize now six different reasons that you need to be a member of the church. The first one is personal identification. If we go back to the New Testament, or Old Testament rather, and we read there, we find out that God was very concerned with this idea of identification. It's very clearly taught in the Old Testament that God had his people and the devil also has his people. And there's distinction between these two different groups. In the Garden of Eden, God drew a line between those who would be called his people, the ones that that he had chosen, and those who had been given over to the domain of Satan. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God spoke to Satan, and he said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So there we find there are two seeds that are spoken of. The seed of the woman, that's referring to Jesus Christ and all who would belong to him and believe believe in him. And the other seed is the seed of the serpent. And those are those who would remain in sin and they would follow their father, the devil. So God identifies very clearly here, two different kinds of people. One he calls his own and the other is the seed of the serpent, those who belong to Satan. And Jesus, you remember, stated the very same thing when he was talking to the Pharisees. He said, ye are of your father, the devil. They weren't God's people. So here we have two different kinds of people, two groups, and these don't cross from one side to the other. Now, there are some people, as I mentioned before, who say that that, that we who believe in the doctrines of grace, we, we are afraid to go to the Old Testament because we can't find it preached there or spoken about there. Well, I'll tell you, you can go all the way back to the very beginning, go right back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, and you find right there that the doctrines of grace are being taught in the very first part of the Bible. So God identified his people. Well, a little bit later on, God called out a special person. He spoke to Abraham when he was in the Ur of the Chaldees, and he promised that he would make of Abraham a great nation. And God came to Abraham alone. He didn't come to anyone else. And he gave Abraham a certain sign and a seal that was a covenant sign that said that he belonged to God. Now, 
God says, these people are to be identified for me. They're my chosen people. And so God changed Abraham's name from Abraham to Abram. And then he told him in Genesis 17, he said, This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. So God gave this sign of circumcision, and that was to be a a sign of ownership. It was a sign that that these people had entered into a covenant relationship with God, and all of these people that were circumcised said, we belong to God. Well, that's Old Testament, and circumcision was the sign that God gave in the Old Testament. Well, now we live in a new era. We live in the New Testament times. Circumcision is Old Covenant, it's Old Testament. Now we're in a new era, and now we're under the New Covenant, or in the New Testament time. And so God has given us a different way that he identifies his people. Those who are identified as God's people are ones who are members of his church. We're people who've gone through the waters of baptism. We've made our public identification with Christ in that way. And then we come, we've come, and we've, we've taken up our position as being uh, among the faithful of the church. Well, we know, of course, that you can be saved without church membership. You can be saved without baptism. But the truth is, you are not properly identified as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, unless you have become a member of his church and you are fellowship with, with, fellowshipping with God's people. And the fellowship, as we know, is called the body of Christ. And it's a body because bodies are not made up of disjointed members. You don't have disjointed members that are called a body. For instance, if you're walking down the street one day or on the sidewalk and you see a finger lying on the sidewalk... You don't call up the police and say, hey, I found a body. Well, the police will come and they'll see the finger and they say, well, there's the finger, but where's the rest of the body? And the point I'm trying to make here is that there is no such thing in the New Testament as independent Christians. You don't have fingers out there by themselves. You you don't have toes and, and legs and so forth that are out there all alone. The idea that we get from the New Testament is that We're to be members of the body, and a freelance Christian or a Christian that's not attached to the body of Christ, that does not have any precedent in Scripture. It's totally foreign to the New Testament. Well, we have lots of people who claim Christianity, and they say things like, well, I don't don't like organized Christianity. And we talked a little bit about that last week. Um, I met a fellow at the car wash one day, and I was speaking to him, and and, uh, we were talking about some things, talking about the Lord. And I, he said to me, I don't like organized Christianity. Well, when you say that, you, you just might as well say, well, I am turned off from the body of Christ. Because the church is a visible, organized body. This body comes together as a group, and we're identified among the people of God when we are part of the Lord's church. And if there's another way of identification in the New Testament, I simply have not found it. Jesus said, upon this rock... I will build my church. The scripture says Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. And so if you can find a scripture that says that a Christian is to abandon the church, he doesn't need to be a member of the Lord's church, show me that scripture and I'll believe it. But I know a scripture like that doesn't exist because God demands that we, as Christians we become a part of the body of Christ. And right here in the book of Ephesians, Paul speaks about the building of God. He talks about the body of Christ. And both of those things 
are metaphors that show us that the church is a cohesive unit made up of visible parts. And so if you want to be identified with Christ, you must be a part of the church. Now let's go back to the thought of baptism for just a moment. Uh, over and over, I've emphasized to you in our preaching that, that baptism is public identification with Christ. Paul said in Galatians 3, verse 27, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We've already talked about that baptism is a church ordinance, and so it stands to reason that if Paul says you are baptized into Christ, and if you're baptized into Christ, that you must also be baptized in the church because baptism is a church ordinance. So if baptism identifies you as being in Christ, then also the church identifies you as being in Christ. Now, the second reason that you need to be a member of the church or the purpose is for personal growth. Now, I want you to go back to Ephesians 4 for just a moment, if you'd turn there. And remember, when we talk about Ephesians, this is Paul's letter to a church, the church at Ephesus. And in verse number 11 of this fourth chapter, he says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Well, uh, Christ set the apostles in the church first. And we note, of course, that that was in the church. That, that's what the apostles were called out for. That's according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 28. The apostles are set in the church first. And then he says here in Ephesians that they are prophets, evangelists, preachers, and teachers. Then he gives us the purpose for them. We find that in verse number 12. He says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And then in verse number 15, he says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. And then in verse number 16, he follows that up, talking about the whole body being together. And he speaks about how the body increases in growth as it's edified in love. And so we see obvious connections here between these two things. Growth for a Christian comes through the church. And the truth of the matter is, Christians do not grow well outside of the church. If you find a Christian who says, well, uh, I don't like organized religion, don't want to be a part of the Lord's church, then you found a weak Christian. I've never found a strong Christian outside of the church. Why is that? Well, it's an impossible thing. If the Word of God says that the church is for teaching and for preaching and for edification. Of course, that means to build up people. If that's what it's for, then how are saints going to be edified if they aren't a part of the Lord's church? So this is the place where it has to be done. So it's not going to happen. You can't be a strong Christian if you don't become a part of the Lord's church. But I want to mention something else here. For those of you who are members of the church, and yet you're sporadic in your church attendance. A person who does that is not going to be a healthy, growing Christian. You have to be consistent about, about your church uh, uh, attendance because to be in, in church means that's the only way that you can be involved in the service that goes on here. And part of growing as a Christian is to be involved in the service of the Lord. And we have so many Christians, you know, uh, they can take off at the drop of a hat. You don't see them around. When it comes time to do their job in the church, they're somewhere else instead of being here. And so who does their jobs? Somebody else has to do their job. So who does the growing? Somebody else does the growing. They don't do it because they're not here. So church is a place for growth, and you need to be here when we have services. Third thing here is for personal ownership. You need to be a member of the church for personal ownership. Because when you become a member of the Lord's church, this gives you a sense of belonging. The church is a family. 
mean, I look out over this group tonight and I consider you to be my brothers and my sisters in Christ. You're the family that I have here. Now, there's a sense in which everybody who comes into the church, no matter whether you're a member or not, I mean, we love you and we care for people like that when they come into the church. But let's suppose somebody comes into our church and they, says what, they say something, you know, like, well, uh, the church is a nice thing, that, that's really good, but, but I don't really like... Uh, I don't like you enough to become a part of your church, and I'd rather just keep my distance from you. I'll just attend. I'll, I'll hit and miss and come whenever I want to, and I really don't want to be a member of the church. Well, at least this, my human nature is going to tell me I'm not going to have as much care and concern for somebody like that as I do for a member of my own church. Church gives us a sense of belonging. When you become a member, you get a sense of belonging. It's no longer a church. It's not that church over there. It's it's my church. And when it becomes, you become a member, it becomes your church. And and you become a part of this family here. I don't know about you, but I don't like people to speak badly about my family. I'm loyal to my family, and, and you don't want to say anything about my family members. Well, this is what happens when you become a member of a church. You, you take ownership in that church. And you don't like people disparaging your family. So it's a whole different feeling you get from being on the outside looking in. You become a part of the family. And, and you take ownership when you become a part of the church. Fourth thing we want to notice is personal commitment. The purpose of the church is to show commitment. Well, who are you committed to? You're committed to Christ, aren't you? This is his body. And so if you were to say, well, I don't want to be a member of a church, then you're saying, well, I really don't care about truth. You say, I don't care about teaching. I don't care about obedience and baptism and the Lord's Supper. I don't care about the ordinances of the church. I don't care about evangelism. I care for none of those things. Well, if that's what you think or what you say by your action, then you're saying that you don't care about Christ. Because what you've done, you've rejected everything that Christ stands for. So... You need commitment to the church. And you can't say, I don't want to be committed to the church. And at the very same time, say, I am committed to Christ. And there's some folks in the church that that are members. And you really need to get a hold of this truth right here. That your commitment to Christ is judged by your commitment to his church. And if you're not committed to his church, you can't say that you're committed to Christ. Now, if we go back and we think about perhaps the uh, disciples that were on the shore of Galilee... Uh, Jesus was making his, one of his post-resurrection appearances. He had prepared breakfast on the fire for the disciples. After they'd eaten, Jesus spoke to Simon Peter. And I'm sure you remember what he said. He said, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And Peter said, yea, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus asked him that same question twice more. He said, do you love me more than these? And the first time that Jesus asked that question, he used a word that meant, Simon, do you love me with 100% love? And Peter replied with a, with a word in his statement that said, yes, Lord, I love you with 60% love. Well, the last time that Jesus asked the question, he asked Peter using the very same word that Peter used this time. And he said, Peter, do you love me even with 60% love? And what Peter, or what Jesus was trying to show Peter was the level of commitment that he had. Well, if a, if a person, a Christian, makes no commitment to the church, how do you think that he would answer Jesus' question? If Jesus came to him and said, Christian, do you love me more than these? Do you love me with 100% love? How would that person respond? Would they say, yes, Lord, I love you with... And what would the percentage be? 
Well, you couldn't say 100% love because you haven't decided to become a part of the Lord's church. And so the less commitment that you have, the less love that you have for Christ or the less percentage of love. And I would venture to say that there are many Christians that if Jesus were to ask them, do you love me more than these? And knowing their hearts, he knows what the answer would be. He would know that the answer is no, you don't love me at all. You reject my body, you reject my truth, you reject my ordinances, you reject my commands, you reject the fellowship uh, with the people of God. So how can you say that you love me? You know, one of the things that Jesus said about the church at Ephesus, in Revelation, he was speaking about this very church at Ephesus. And he said, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. Now, those are words that he said to people that were in the church. These are members of the church. Now, what do you think that he would say to Christians who haven't even taken care to become part of the Lord's church? So remember this, becoming a part of the church shows your commitment. You're saying, I want to be a part of the work that Jesus is doing in this world. I want to be a part of, what, of God's plan and purpose for the world. So you need to be a member of the church for the purpose of commitment. Then next, you need to be a part of the church for personal responsibility. Now here's where we can go back and we can think about the marriage relationship once again. Uh, today we have a lot of people that are very skittish about marriage. Uh, they don't want to take those vows. And they don't want to sign those papers and, and go through marriage because they simply do not want the responsibilities. And so what they want to do, they want to be in a position where, well, I can get out of this relationship any time that I want for any reason that I want. I don't want to get married because I don't want that responsibility. Well, the truth of it is, to get the benefits of marriage rightly, you have to enter into the marriage. I mean, you, you, you need the, uh, the benefits and the joys from marriage. Well, you've got to be a part of that. You've got to take the responsibilities that come with it. And the very same thing is true of the church. If you want church privileges, if you want the benefits that, become, that come to a person who, who is a member of the church, you have to be a member. The Lord's Supper would be one of those things. I mean, that's a privilege for church members. It's not a privilege for those who aren't part of the church. I mean, we can't imagine that Jesus would say to people who don't want to be a part of the church that he would say, well, you're invited. Come, take part of my supper. Have this supper with me. And invite him to his table when he knows that all they ever want to do is take, 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 and they never want to give anything. They never want to accept responsibility. Well, when you become a member of the church, you share in the responsibilities of everything that goes on here. You get a piece of the successes that we have, and you get a piece of the failures that we have. And the truth is that you don't receive these kinds of blessings that you get from being a part of the church anywhere else. God gives special, special blessings to his people that are part of his church. So we find then there's not a Christian anywhere, not one, that God has ever called to sit on the sidelines and just watch everybody else do the work that we're supposed to do in the world. God wants all of us to take responsibility, and that means becoming a part of his church. Well, what's another reason, another purpose to be a part of the church? Well, the last one here is personal effectiveness. Now, how effective do you think that this church would be if all of us decided, well, we're just going to scatter to the wind, we're going to do our own thing, go our own way, how effective would we be for Christ? How would we support our missionaries 
if we just decided that, well, we're just going to go our own way and do our own thing. Well, we wouldn't be able to. How would we reach the world with the gospel? It's not possible for us as individuals probably to travel around the world with the gospel, and yet that's exactly what Christ has commanded, to reach the whole world. So in order to be effective with that, we have to come together as a body and, and come together and do God's work in that way. We can't do it as individuals. Uh, the work of the church is individuals. So do you see here the need for the body that he points out? Paul writes that, that God has placed the members in the body as it pleased him. And what we have here is this great blending. We have lots of diversity. We have different things that people can do, different talents that we have. And we put those all together and we're able to do the work of the Lord. And when you think about it by comparison... Um, how do you get your work done every day? I mean, as an individual, I mean, uh, you, you've got a place that you work. How do you get your work done every day? Do you send your leg to work? And send a leg over there and let that do your job for you. I've never seen a leg put parts together on the assembly line. Have you? It takes the whole body, doesn't it? And, and to get the job done that you have to do, it takes all of your body working together. Now, Joe's sitting here on the front row. He's a good guy to pick on because this front row is a bad place to be. But if I use Joe's as an example, Joe's writes software, I believe, don't you? All right, Joe's writes software. Well, can Joe's write software with his ear? Well, no, that's silly. He couldn't do that. So what does he use? Well, he sits down at his computer, and he uses his eyes to read the text. He uses his fingers to strike the keys on the keyboard. He uses his hands to move the mouse around. I guess you use a mouse, don't you? So he's got that mouse. He's moving that around. He uses his rear end to sit in the chair to hold him up. And you need that. You see the point here? I mean, your rear end has nothing to do directly with the ability to type, does it? But try typing standing up or try typing sitting on your head. Doesn't work very well, does it? So in order for him to do his work, it takes all of his body working together. Each piece plays a particular part to make sure that he's able to write that software application. And that's the way it is in a church. All of us have to work together. I remember I was watching a, a television program one day, and, and uh, there was a fellow that had been born without any leg, or any arms, rather. He was born without any arms, but he'd learned to play the piano. And he learned to play the piano with his toes. Well, he was pretty good for a toe-playing piano player. He was pretty good for that. But he wasn't anything at all compared to the ladies that sit over here and use the right body parts and everything working together like it should to play the piano. And again, that's just like it is in the church. You can't be effective for God as one little part out here by yourself. You have to join yourself to the body in order to be effective. So it all comes down to this, that this is the way that God has designed for things to work. This is the plan and purpose for the world. His work does not get done in other ways. This is the way that he says to do it. And as a Christian, you become a part of the church because you want to be able to do all that God requires of Christians and become a part of his work in the world. So we have the priorities of church membership. We have the purpose of church membership. And I want to finish with talking to, by talking to you just a few minutes about this third area, and that is the privilege of church membership. There's a very special word that God uses to describe the church. And again, this comes from the analogy of marriage. The church is called the bride of Christ. Jesus is the groom, and the church is the bride. 
And there's only one way that you can become a part of Christ's bride, and that is you have to be a member of the Lord's church. So you can write that down in your listening sheet here, that the church is the bride of Christ. And folks, that's a privilege that's not enjoyed by anyone who lived in the Old Testament. I mean, there are lots of great saints that we read about in the Old Testament times. There's Abraham and Moses and Samuel and David and Elijah, uh, Daniel. Many, many great saints that we read about in the Old Testament. But not one of those people will be in the bride of Christ because there was no church in their time. They, They weren't members of the church. Jesus said that the greatest person that was born among women was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was part of the Old Testament dispensation. And so John the Baptist himself said, Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. So we see there that John never claimed to be a part of the bride of Christ. He said, I am a friend of the bridegroom. And so all of those people that we have in the Old Testament that that lived before the church came into being, none of them were a part of the bride of Christ because there was no church. And here we are in the New Testament age, and for anybody who is a Christian, believers in Christ, and they have not become members of the church, then they also are not a part of the bride of Christ. They are friends of the bridegroom. And admittedly, some of them are not very good friends, but they're still friends of the bridegroom. So it's a special privilege to be a part of the bride of Christ because it's the bride that Jesus holds in the highest esteem. Of course, Jesus loves all of his children. I mean, whether, whether or not you actually become a member of the church, if you're a saved person, Jesus loves you. There's no question about that. But the Bible does teach us that there is a special regard. There's a special relationship for those who become a part of the Lord's church. When Jesus was here, he spent his time talking about his church. He talked about enjoying fellowship with his disciples. And those 12 apostles that he chose, they were the first ones that he put in his church. Therefore, they were the first ones who became a part of the bride. Then all the people that they witnessed to who got saved and became members of the church, they also became members of the bride or became a part of the bride of Christ. So this is a great privilege we have to be part of a group that nobody in the Old Testament even knew anything about, and they won't be a part of this. But if you are a member of the Lord's church and a faithful member of his church, you'll be a part of the bride of Christ. And then also, those who are a part of the bride receive another privilege, and that is the bride will live in the new Jerusalem. Christ loves, loves his bride, and so he has prepared a special place for his bride to live. And I believe that the Bible teaches that all those who are part of the bride of Christ will have a special dwelling place in the new Jerusalem. Now, the Apostle John writes in Revelation chapter 21, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God, out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So the New Jerusalem is a very special city. It's designed for the bride of Christ. And I think that it would be fair to say that this is Jesus' wedding gift to his bride. He's given them a very special place that they're going to live. Now, we notice that the scripture talks about things like the new heaven and the new earth. What it's talking about there is 
the earth on which we live and the heavens there speaks of the stellar heavens. It speaks of the atmospheric heavens. And the Bible teaches us that those are going to be burned up. The earth and the heavens, that those heavens will be burned up. And then God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. But aside from that, God is also going to build this place, this special city called the New Jerusalem. And those that are a part of the bride will live in the New Jerusalem. Well, the Bible teaches us that the gates of this city are going to be open all of the time. People will go in and out of it. People who are not a part of the bride of Christ will have access to this city. But those people will actually live on the renovated earth. And they'll live in the, in the renovated heavens. They're not going to live in the New Jerusalem. But they do have access to it. They go in and out of the city. And in support of that, we can read from Revelation chapter 21, verses 24 to 26. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, that's speaking of the city, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. So it seems to me from those verses that those who are not a part of the bride of Christ, they live outside of this city, although they have access to the city, and only God's people that are part of the bride, members of his church, will actually be the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem. But then I want to point out one other thing to you as we finish up tonight, and that's about the foundation of this city. The Bible tells us that the apostles are the foundation of the church. And because they were the very first ones that God put into the church and and there was a a special love and affinity for them, God has given them a special designation, a special tribute, you might say, because their names are going to be written into the 12 foundations of this city. Revelation 21 verse 14 says, And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, And in the names of them, the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Folks, this is what you get. A blessed privilege from being a part of the Lord's church. You get the new Jerusalem. You become in the bride of Christ. You're loved in a special way. You'll become an inhabitant of that new Jerusalem, that special city. And this is why it's just so wonderful to understand this glorious truth about the church. Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. So a devoted Christian would never say, he would never say, I don't want to be a part of Christ's church. You can't do that and be committed, be a committed, devoted Christian to the Lord Jesus. So here's what we need to do. We just need to thank God that we're a part of a true Bible-believing church, a true New Testament church. All of us really ought to thank God, I think, every day, and I do. Thank God for Berean Baptist Church and a place that... Uh, people that he's given us who know the truth about the church and will be a part, I believe, of that great bride of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the wonderful privilege, again, of being members of the church. Lord, uh, you just laid it out so beautifully for us, telling us that we can be a part of your bride, giving us that special city to live in, but then also just the blessed privilege of being your servants here in this world and do what you've called us to do. And then, Lord, to receive a reward for everything that's done. We thank you for that. Bless our people, Lord, and help us to really understand the blessed privilege that we have of being a part of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.